Good morning, everyone. Today I want to begin a new series of studies in the little book of Titus. And if you would turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 1 and we'll read the first five verses together. Titus chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life which God who never lies promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our saviour to Titus my true child in a common faith grace and peace from God the father and Christ Jesus our saviour this is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Amen. And we know God will always bless the reading of his own inspired word. Titus is one of the pastoral epistles. That's to say, along with 1 and 2 Timothy, Paul wrote these letters uh, to young pastors to encourage them in the task that God had called them to. We know that Titus was a Gentile converted under the ministry of Paul. If you look at verse 4, he addresses the letter to Titus, my true child, in a common faith. Now, Paul had no natural children, but he had many spiritual children, men and women who had been converted uh, through his ministry. And Titus was such a man, and they shared a common faith. That is to say, they were perfectly united in what they believed. It was a common faith. There were no major divisions or differences between them. Doctrinally and theologically, they were one. Paul refers to Titus uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 as my partner and fellow worker. And when he was downcast, he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 that he was comforted by the coming of Titus. So there was a great bond of filial affection between these two men they were united in a common faith and they served a common lord now if you look at verse 5 we uh, get an indication of why paul was writing to timothy he says this is why i left you in crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as i directed you paul had visited crete He had preached the gospel. A number of people had been converted, churches established, and he left Titus on the island of Crete uh, to ground these churches in that common faith. Now, the very fact that Paul entrusted Titus with such a task reveals something of the confidence that he had in this young man doctrinally, pastorally, and spiritually. He was a, a true child of Paul with a common faith. This morning, we want to look at Paul's introduction in the first three verses, which is one of the longest introductions to any of the epistles in the New Testament. And in it, Paul speaks of his own ministry, and he sets out his own ministry as a pattern for the ministry for this young pastor to follow. Now, notice uh, Paul states four things about his ministry the commitment that he had to his ministry, the aim in his ministry, the blessings from his ministry, and the method 
of his ministry. So first of all then, the commitment to his ministry. Look at how Paul introduces himself in verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. In these verses we see Paul's great authority and at the same time his great humility. He is an apostle. That is one of those men specially selected by God to oversee the establishment of the New Testament church who was endowed with uh, exceptional gifts and authority when it came to the church. One of the qualifications for an apostle was that they had to be an actual eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. Now, of course, Paul was converted after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. But uh, Jesus appeared to him on the Damascus road. And so Paul could say to the Corinthians, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? And he, as an apostle, was entrusted with great authority to direct churches, to write scripture, to understand truth, and of course, to perform miracles to authenticate that claim to apostleship. Now, we don't have apostles today because no one can meet that criteria of being an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. And we know that because of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says of the resurrected Christ, he appeared to Peter, he appeared to the twelve, he appeared to the five hundred, he appeared uh, to James, and then he says he appeared last of all to me. Last of all to me. So Paul belonged to that unique band that God gave to his church of apostles to see it established. That was his great authority. But notice his great humility. He describes himself not only as an apostle in verse 1, but as a servant of God. Paul, a servant of God, he says. The word translates the Greek word uh, for slave, doulos, the word for slave. Paul was a bond slave of Jesus Christ. God had redeemed him. That is, that he purchased him. He paid a price for him. The picture is of God entering our world, which is a slave market. And he moves around the slave market and sees people shackled and bound by sin. And he makes his selection. And then he pays the price of their redemption. And the price that was paid was the blood of Christ. Peter writes, for we were redeemed not with corruptible things such as silver and gold, but by the precious blood uh, of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And we are uh, set free from the shackles and from that bondage to sin. But we're not free to do as we please. We have a new owner, a new master, a new ruler, the Lord Jesus Christ. He has bought us. He has paid for us and we belong to him. We are slaves of God, slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. And slaves in the New Testament had no rights of their own. They lived under the full authority of their master. If he said go, they went. If he said come, they came. And if he said die, they died. And that's how Paul viewed himself. 
He was a bond slave of God. He was in complete and willing bondage to God. He had no life that he called his own, no ambitions of his own, no purpose of his own, no plan of his own. In everything, he was subject to the authority and to the lordship of his master, a bond slave of Jesus. You know, at the end of the Second World War in London, a conference was called to consider the greatest men of all time. Uh, society tried to pick up the remnants and the dereliction of two world wars, feeling that civilization perhaps was coming to an end. The great intellectuals called this conference to consider the most influential thinkers in the history of the world who made the greatest contribution to civilization. And this secular organization gave the Apostle Paul an evening as one of the great masterminds, one of the great thinkers of all time. And here is Paul, one of the most influential men of all time, having a phenomenal impact on the history of the world, endowed with a massive intellect, given great authority in the church and exercising great influence in the world. And he calls himself a bond slave of God. And if you are a Christian, that's what you are. You are a bond slave of God. You're not your own. You have been bought with a price. You belong to him. That's Paul's commitment to his ministry. An apostle, but a bond slave of uh, God. His authority, but also his humility. Secondly, notice with me the aim in his ministry. Look at verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. The aim of Paul's ministry, this bond slave of God, was twofold. Evangelization and edification. First of all, evangelization. He says, the reason I was appointed an apostle and why I am a bond slave of God was for the sake of the faith of God's elect. The authorized version says, according to the faith of God's elect. That word according means for, in the interest of, for the purpose of, for the benefit of. Sometimes it's translated to words, to, to this end, for the faith of God's elect. One version translates it like this, to bring those whom God has chosen to faith. You see, Paul's knowledge and confidence in the doctrine of election didn't, as some people try to imply, uh, undermine his zeal for evangelism. He had confidence in the doctrine of election and that confidence that God has a people for himself that he will bring to faith spurred him on to take the gospel to all the world. He was motivated with this burden to see men and women, boys and girls, the elect of God brought to faith because faith was the agency by which uh, men and women, boys and girls, are brought into a right relationship with God. Paul says in Romans, 
For in the gospel, a righteousness is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith, by faith, from first to last. And the aim of Paul's ministry was to see the elect of God, those that were chosen by God from the foundation of the world, brought to faith in Jesus. Of course, he didn't know who the elect were. He preached the gospel to all freely, fully, passionately, persuasively, urgently, confident that God would do his own work. This was the great aim of his ministry to see men and women and young people brought to faith in Jesus. I wonder if that is true of us. Is that our great Raison d'etre is that our great purpose and goal in life. At all times, in all places, to see people brought to faith in Christ and to share our faith with others. Now, if you're not a Christian this morning, you've got to understand that it's for the sake of the faith of God's elect that Paul went out and we go out into an unbelieving world. Because faith is the means by which the blessings of the gospel are secured. Do you believe? That's the question. Do you believe in Jesus? You don't ask the question of yourself, am I one of the elect? You ask yourself, am I a believer? Am I trusting in Jesus? And when you trust in Jesus, you know that you are one of his elect. The aim of his ministry, evangelization. The second aim of his ministry was edification. Look again at verse 1. And their knowledge of the faith which accords to godliness. So you have his first aim, which is evangelization for the sake of the faith of God's elect. And secondly, edification and their knowledge of the truth which accords to godliness. Godliness is the great goal of our salvation, that we might be holy. Matthew Henry says, Be ye holy as I am holy, is the great fundamental law of our religion. And the aim of Paul's ministry was not just to see the elect brought to faith, but that the, those who come to faith might grow in godliness. Now, the way you grow in godliness is through a knowledge of the truth. A knowledge of the truth leads to godliness. That it's our acquaintance with the truth. It's our knowledge of the truth that enables us to grow in godliness. And that's the constant theme of the New Testament. Jesus prayed for his disciples in John 17 to his father, sanctify them by the truth. And then he adds, your word is truth. That the word of God, the truth of God, is the catalyst for godliness developing in the life of the believer. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verses 1 to 3, Therefore rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave the pure spiritual milk so that you may grow up, grow up. It's by imbibing the 
milk of the word of God that you grow, develop and mature as a Christian. Godliness is the flower uh, that grows from truth. Stories told of by B.B. Warfield that after the Civil War in America with towns and cities full of displaced people that two men were walking uh, down the main street of a certain town one in a Confederate uniform and one in a Union uniform and they were facing each other in like a Western movie and the suspense of the onlookers was high. These two men walking towards each other and they eyed one another as they passed and then almost simultaneously they they turned round and faced each other and one man said to the other, what is man's chief end? To which the other replied, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And you see, the, the truth that they understood and the truth that came from that catechetical understanding emanated from them and radiated from them in holiness so that one could see it in the other. And that's the aim of Paul's ministry, to bring God's truth to bear upon men's consciences, knowing that the truth, the truth, will lead to godliness. Is there some Christian listening this morning and you're struggling with sin and temptation and sin seems to have victory over you? And your life is morally and spiritually perhaps at an all-time low. It is the curve of Christian growth has flattened, has leveled out. Could it be that the reason for your stunted growth in godliness is that you haven't been imbibing and embracing the word of God as you should have? Here is the twofold aim of Paul's ministry, evangelization for the faith of God's elect, edification, the knowledge of the truth that accords or leads to godliness, the commitment to his ministry, the aim in his ministry, and then thirdly notice the blessing from his ministry. Look at verse 2, in hope of eternal life which God who never lies promised before the ages began. I should at this point perhaps say that these opening verses of Titus are not easy to translate. It was originally one long sentence uh, in the Greek language with no commas, full stops or semicolons. But you'll notice in verse 2 Paul speaks about the hope of eternal life. Now that is the great blessing, the great aim of the Christian message. It is a message of hope that the faith that is necessary for salvation and the knowledge necessary for godliness rests on this hope, has the goal of the hope of eternal life. Now this word hope is one of the great words of the New Testament. It's a word that refers to the future but not in the way that we hope for the future. There's always an element of uncertainty in our hope. I I hope, I hope, we say, I will pass my exams. I hope I'll get a job. I I hope that the weather will get better um, or the weather will uh, keep 
up during the lockdown. There's an element of uncertainty when we use the word hope. But biblical hope is altogether different. When Christians speak of hope, it's something that's concrete, something that's sure, it's something that's certain. It is something based upon the promises of God. Hope is biblical shorthand for unconditional certainty. Paul underscores the certainty of this hope when he says in verse 2, In hope of eternal life, which God who never lies, that is the, the Greek word pseudo with a negative prefect. Pseudo is, is something that is unreal, like a, a pseudo-Christian or a pseudo-intellectual or a pseudonym. It's, it's not quite the, the real thing. And it's the word pseudo with a negative prefix in, that in him there is nothing pretend, there is nothing false. He is, is true. He never lies. And the gospel which was promised before the ages um, began will be fulfilled because he always keeps his promises. He never breaks a promise. You know, sometimes we ask people, do you believe in God? Well, that's not the essence of faith. Do you believe in God? The essence of faith is, do you believe God? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That faith is resting on the promises of God. And that's why we have hope. Because our God never lies. Our hope is based upon his character that what he says is true. And our hope then is that through the gospel we can be forgiven, uh, accepted by God, and then we look forward to this great prospect of forever being with the Lord. That is our hope. That is the message that we present, that the gospel is a gospel of hope. Now we live in a world of hopelessness, in a world of despair, People are hopeless. Their philosophy of life is you are born, you live and you die. And in a few short years you're forgotten. And the evidence of that is all around us. Wasn't it Scylla Black who sang, what's it all about Alfie? Is it just for the moment we live? And for most people it is. They get up in the morning, they have their breakfast, they go to work, they come home, they have their tea, they sit in front of the telly, they go to bed and they get up the next day and repeat it all over again. Like rats in a wheel, impaled on my wall, my eyes can dimly see the pattern of my life and the puzzle that is me. From the moment of my birth until the instant of my death, there are patterns I must follow just as I must breathe each breath like a rat in a maze. The path before me lies and the pattern never alters until the rat dies. That's Paul Simon's view of life, like a rat in a maze. The path before me lies and the pattern never alters until the rat dies. Hopelessness and despair. People are miserable. And this is one of the... Um, Problems with COVID-19 that, that the things that people live for have been taken from them. 
And they can't do what they used to do in order to um, fill that emptiness that they have inside them. But for the Christian, there is hope. There is a bright tomorrow. There is a better day. He can give you meaning and purpose and help you make sense of life. He can forgive you, cleanse you and bring you safely into glory, into his wonderful presence. That's the hope that we have. There is a land of pure delight where saints immortal reign. Infinite day excludes the night and pleasures banish pain. That's our hope. And that's why when the Christian dies, we do not grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. Because we have hope. We have the new heavens and the new earth to look forward to when he will wipe every tear from our eyes. And that's a message. That's the message that the world needs to hear. That there is a a bright tomorrow In the gospel, in Christ Jesus, that he can give us hope that a better day is coming. That's the blessing that comes through Paul's message. The commitment to his ministry, the aim in his ministry, the blessings from his ministry. And then uh, lastly, the method of his ministry. How then did the Apostle Paul communicate This message to a world that was hopelessly despairing. Well, look at verse 3. And at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Saviour. Paul was very conscious that he was appointed as a preacher at the command of God. That it was God who called him to uh, that particular office and his goal then as a preacher was to manifest the truth of his word now the ESV is a little uh, misleading there I think Um, uh, it's a little bit clumsy the NIV talks about or speaks about who brought the word to light through the preaching entrusted to me The authorised version says, who uh, manifests his word through preaching. That's a wonderful definition of preaching. To manifest the word, to bring his word to light. So in the Old Testament, God had made all these promises uh, about the coming of the Messiah. Promises that were largely not understood by Uh, those who had the Old Testament. But Paul's job as a preacher was to manifest these promises, to manifest this truth, to bring the gospel to light, as the NIV says. Now remember what Paul's aim in ministry was, evangelization for the faith uh, of God's elect, edification and knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Now, how then did he accomplish that? By manifesting the word of God, by the preaching of the word of God. He brought his word to light. He manifested his word through the preaching entrusted to me, says Paul. It was the word being preached. 
Not by his own wisdom and cleverness, not by emotion or intellectual persuasion, but by a declaration of the word, a declaration of truth. The elect came to faith and believers became godly through the preaching of the word of God. Paul writes to Timothy, preach the word, because it is the preaching of the word that brings this hope. John MacArthur, in his commentary on Titus, quotes Walter Kaiser, author of the book Towards an Exegetical Theology. And he says this, It is no secret that Christ's church is not in good health in many parts of the world. She is languishing because she has been fed on junk food, all kinds of artificial preservatives and all sorts of substitutes, artificial substitutes have been served up to her. As a result, theological and biblical malnutrition has affected the very generation that has taken such giant steps to make sure its physical health is not damaged. Junk food, spiritual hamburgers and french fries and hot dogs served with a saccharine smile with the, accompanied with the words, have a nice day. That's the problem. If it is the preaching of the word of God that brings people to a knowledge of the truth and brings them uh, to godliness, that is the issue that's at stake. There is a neglect of the preaching of the word of God. You know how it is when you're asked to go to a youth group, perhaps, or to a CU, and... uh, the secretary comes to you and says, keep it short, especially in the CUs. Keep it short. People can't concentrate for very long. Here are people who are studying pure maths and medicine and international politics and mechanical engineering and, and law. But when it comes to their faith, keep it simple, they say. They don't want to use their mind. They want to suspend their mind. They want to feel good. I was hearing recently of um, uh, the CU at Edinburgh University in the uh, 1970s. And uh, I I was introduced to the programme of uh, the meetings that they had organised. And they were working through the Book of Romans and... Romans 1 they had on the first night with George Philip. Romans 2, Willie Still. Romans 3, Eric Alexander. But now it's how to put fizz into your pop. Or mind over mattress. Which was the subject that I was asked to speak on a number of years ago at Queen's. But you see, Paul understood the importance of preaching the word in evangelism. To bring the elect to a knowledge of the truth and an edification to instruct people that they, with truth so that they will be brought to godliness. It's the word, it's the word, it's the preaching of the word that is the key to the spiritual health of any congregation. Now you might say to me, you're a preacher, that you would say that. This is what Paul says. Paul Paul, in Romans 12, tells us not to be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. How does that transformation take place? 
by the renewing of your mind, by truth entering the intelligence and having an effect upon your life. That it, it enters the mind, it drops to the heart and it's worked out uh, through the fingertips. And that's how we bring hope to the world. Now, of course, not everyone like Paul is called to be a preacher. But Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3 and verse 15. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you. And to give a reason for the hope that is within you. That you have this hope. And you must always be prepared to give a reason why you have that hope. When somebody asks, why are you different? Why do you have peace? Why are you not anxious in this COVID-19 crisis? And you answer, because of the hope that I have. And although not all are called to preach, all Christians must be ready to give a reason for the hope that is within them. Are you ready for that? Could you give a reason for the hope that is within you if somebody came and asked you about that hope? This then is Paul's ministry. This is the example that he's setting before this young pastor, this young preacher, Timothy. He says, this is my, the reason, this is what drives me to ministry. Commitment to his ministry. He was an apostle, he had authority, but he was a bond slave. He was characterized by great humility. The aim in his ministry was twofold. Evangelization for the sake of the faith of God's elect, And edification, their knowledge of the truth, which leads to godliness. The blessing from his ministry was this hope, this hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. And then the method of his ministry, Paul declared this. He he preached this. He manifested this. This hope. He brought this hope to light through the preaching of the Word of God, which God had entrusted him with. Amen.